This is episode 14 of the Now Is podcast. My name is Ben Remsen, and the idea of this podcast is normally to play tunes for musicians without telling them what they're about to hear. This episode will be a bit different. What follows is the conversation that I had with reed player Ken Vandermark, percussionist Tim Daisy, and guitarist Andrew Klinkman on September 29th, 2016, in my living room in the Rogers Park neighborhood of Chicago. Since 2015, Ken, Tim, and Andrew have collaboratively programmed a weekly series called Option, hosted at Experimental Sound Studio, hereafter referred to as ESS. Some Option shows are typical two-set gigs, but most of them function more like a salon. The featured musician plays a solo set and then sits for a live interview, usually with Ken, sometimes with Tim or Andrew, including questions from the audience. This creates intimate portraits of these musicians for invariably wrapped audiences in a superb sounding recording studio that's not much bigger than my living room. These intimate portraits, however, have not been hoarded. They've been live streamed online and recorded for posterity. Oh yeah, in addition to being a studio and a performance space, ESS houses the Creative Audio Archive, which includes, among many other things, over 600 unreleased tapes of the Sun Ra Orchestra. Seriously. As you can tell, I'm a big fan of Option. As such, I feel no compunction about shilling for them. Because, yes, the impetus for this first ever variation of the Now Is Podcast concept is that Option needs funds. If you've attended the series, please recognize that the 5 to 10 bucks you're paying at the door isn't fully covering the bills. If you've watched any of the shows online, understand that this sort of thing is free as in freedom and free as in jazz, but not free as in beer. If you haven't witnessed these shows in any way, then one, you ought to start, and two, you should consider helping fund a project that provides a unique forum for some of the most interesting musicians alive to get sonically deep, as well as to try to verbalize these depths a goal we share at the Now Is Podcast. So please consider helping them continue to provide this forum. If you go to ESS.org, you'll see different ways to donate, including by purchasing recordings of many of the option performances, the very same recordings you're about to hear Ken, Tim, Andrew, and I discuss. A note about this plea. Yes, there are a lot of organizations and causes that need our support right now. The Chicago Teachers Union, for example, is slated to go on strike the same day this episode is scheduled to hit the web. And if you don't support them, then I encourage you to delete this podcast from your phone right now. But look, we all know Emma Goldman's line about dancing and revolution, and I myself don't want to be part of any revolution that doesn't include the opportunity to spend two hours with Joe McPhee, listening to him play a brilliant solo set, and then describe the experience as a teenager of seeing John Coltrane as well as the circumstance that led him to get a ride with Ornette Coleman to Coltrane's funeral. So again, if you like this kind of music, go to ESS.org and give Option some money. They're putting it to excellent use. That all said, don't worry. What follows is not an NPR-style telethon, but an open-ended conversation about creative music in reaction to recordings from Option shows. Both the intro and outro recordings are from Option shows as well, I'm currently talking over a duo of Ben Vita on analog synths and Jason Adeshevitz on vibraphone. At the end of this interview, you'll hear solo piano from Sylvie Corvassier. In between, there are parts where it's less than clear who we're listening to, notably in just a moment, when the interview starts somewhat abruptly with Tim talking about percussionist Paul Litton. As usual, go to nowis.org, N-O-W hyphen I-S dot org, 
for a full playlist and links to find out more about all the musicians. You can also subscribe to the Now Is podcast in the iTunes store and like it on Facebook. Okay, Ken Vandermark, Tim Daisy, and Andrew Klinkman. And Paul was actually the first uh, musician that I heard in Chicago playing non-metered music on the drums, actually. Unmetered music. Non-metered, yeah. So he's dealing with sound and texture and propulsion on the drums and ideas, but he's not putting it into a, uh, necessarily into a meter. He can do that stuff, but sure. he's choosing not to do that stuff. Um, so I relate a lot of what he's doing to, um, I think about kinetic sculpture and I think sure. about visual art, actually. Okay. And it wasn't until much later that I learned that Paul is a quite a good painter. Okay. Um, and I saw his paintings for the first time, uh, not in person, but through slides at the option series, actually. Uh, and, and did you see wonderful. a direct parallel? between the painting and the I mean that's a big question um, direct I'm not so sure definitely there's ideas and abstraction that correlate between the visual component and the sound component um, it made sense to me his playing made even more sense to me when I saw his visual art for sure rather than having like stick control and what he, which he really does have. right he has like these amazing rudimentary skills that yeah. are incredible but it's not like he's applying that always directly to the instrument, and then yeah. that's the result. He affects the instrument, he treats it, prepares right. the instrument. Yeah. He messes with, with what's possible, and he creates situations all the time that he can't control on purpose yeah. to deal with the result of that, to cause disruption. He's very devoted to that, more than almost any other improviser I know, actually. Yeah. You know, he, he's, he's, he's got a real goal to seek failure, you know, yeah. in the sense, and, and deal with that set of mistakes, so to speak, yeah. Yeah. rather than controlling the situation with with technique. He yeah. creates situations that technique can't overcome, you know. I feel like he allows for a lot of <clears throat> autonomy of all the different, um, not just, you know, objects that he might be stacking up on the snare drum, but all the different techniques that he's using and all the different sounds of each uh, thing that he might apply to it, it's more like, like you said, he's sort of applying something to the instrument more than controlling the instrument at all times. He sort of allows for that breathing to mm-hmm. take place. Really There's always a sense of risk in his music when totally. I hear him, and he, he's, I think of experimentation, number one, with him. He has plenty of technique, but I don't, he uses whatever technique he needs to get the experimentation part mm-hmm. of his ideas out. And that's fantastic. I'm never listening to him and going, wow, he's really got a really great double stroke role. But he does, but I don't think of, of it like a drummer at all. I'm thinking of it much more like someone who's experimenting and his yeah. platform happens to be these resonators that look like drums. They, they are drums, it is a symbol, it is a drum, but he's using a lot of times he's using them as tables. You know, he's got his full arsenal of sounds and he's experimenting. Um, and I'm never thinking, wow, that was an interesting um, drum pattern he played. I'm like, no, that was an interesting set of ideas that he yeah. just exhibited. Basically. Yeah. That makes sense, again, in connecting with the visual art, too. I mean, you, you would never look at a really successful painting and think, like, what a nicely mixed red. You would see mm-hmm. it as, yeah, right, even right. if it's a total abstraction, yeah. you right. would see it as something that conveys, yeah, a form, an idea, totally. sort of feeling. Absolutely. Yep. It kind of sets the conditions and, let, and then sort of lets whatever happens happen.
he, uh, he had, I believe he was playing his archtop. Archtop, uh, yeah. Just acoustically, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Archtop. His DDA mic on it, but, uh... Yeah. Archtop. Yeah. And it's a type of guitar, too, that is not often used acoustically, at least not since the 1930s, <laughs> since there have been pickups on guitars like this. Um, and I've always loved the way that he approached the guitar from the perspective of really wanting it to sound the most like a guitar that it could sound, while, of course, he's completely breaking down so many different technical aspects of what a guitar can sound like. In the end, it sounds almost uh, you know, as guitar-y as it gets. What are the technical aspects you're thinking of? Well, um, both from like a, a phrasing standpoint of how he's approaching pitch material and sound material, he is definitely juxtaposing a lot of different uh, different sounds and structures side by side. So he might do uh, something that is extremely dense and sort of jumping around a lot of pitch space, and then he might stay in one area and slow it down a little bit and sort of juxtapose certain textures side by side. And then from a technical perspective, with the guitar, he's using, uh, for the most part, if I recall correctly on this show, a lot of finger style plucking, and he would even go into some areas that, from a technique standpoint, were derived from a lot of American folk music. Um, so yeah, like, we talked about that afterwards. Quite a bit. Uh, yeah. Reverend Gary Davis and other similar finger pickers, uh, but obviously what he's doing from a musical perspective doesn't sound anything like mm -hmm. what Reverend Gary Davis was doing. He really got me to love acoustic guitars again, because <laughs> uh, uh -huh. sort of like you mentioned with solid body guitars, really the source of all the sound is tied to what the pickup is able to grab and then how that sound is being processed. So in the end, you know, there are certain things that you can affect with regards to the sound with your hands, but in the end, most of it is going to be with a tone knob or a pedal or something. And even then, there's not that much you can do in terms of getting different uh, inflections in the sound of the guitar. Whereas on an acoustic instrument, as with all other acoustic instruments, since it's actually a chamber where air is bouncing around and resonating, there's so much more room for uh, very minute changes in inflection and, and sound. Studying with Joe for the four years that I studied with him, uh, you know, I was, he, he would sort of tell me how he operated, and I sort of did more, you know, I didn't have an instruction manual on how to make different language happen on the guitar when improvising, but I had Joe in front of me who had done it, and I was able to, uh, you know, learn a lot from him in terms of how to develop my own way of doing that. Um, that was even independent of what Joe does, and he, I think, because he took many years to really work on it on his own, he also sort of was able to develop the keys to showing other people how to do that as well, so I was very lucky to be able to 
uh, you know, spend time with him. And yeah, I mean, I think with Joe's music, it's an indicator of how you can approach things as an improviser. Mm-hmm. And part of what's great about it is that it's an indicator. It's not like the way to do it. It's a strong way to do it. It's an individual way to do it. And you can talk about the impact of Cecil Taylor or Jimmy Lyons on his playing or Hendrix on his playing. And depending on what he's doing at a certain point or which group he's playing with, you can hear maybe those influences or inspirations coming through more strongly. But at no point do you think, oh, that's someone trying to imitate Jimi Hendrix or Cecil Taylor. He's processed those elements really organically and worked at them to make them his own. And so the source material may indicate one thing, but the translation to a different instrument the personality of the player, all those components going into what the result becomes. Joe's a high watermark for that approach to playing. And um, it comes across all the time. He's super individual, but also very flexible. He's got tons of vocabulary that's his, but also can be applied to situations where he's not the leader. It's not necessarily his band, so to speak. and I think that that's a great model as a teacher because it's not like he's saying this is the way to do it. This is an approach that has flexibility, like find your sources, figure out how to process them, how to yeah. turn them into something that you can utilize on your instrument with your creative skill set, etc. And that's really what we need, you know, in terms of the musician part, for sure, his contributions on that level, but certainly in the, in the teacher part. Because what happens a lot with teachers, in my experience, encountering their students is that they replicate the teacher. The teachers come up with a set of solutions to the problem of playing music, whether it's improvised or not, and then kind of hands those over to the students in many cases, and then they end up sounding like second-rate versions of the, of the teacher, yeah. which isn't helpful for anybody. Um, and Joe... Certainly uh, not the listener. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, we have Joe Morris, so we don't need, like, a bunch of small Joe Morrises running around, you know. And, uh, and I think Joe has been very successful at figuring out how to take what he can offer, which is the attitude and the, the sensibility to the students and try to shake them up and say, hey, find your own thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is... The flexibility in that approach is crucial. And he, he's been very successful with that, I think, which is great. Yeah. He's developed a methodology that doesn't have one end point. Yeah, exactly. One result. You know, he... One of... Uh, I can paraphrase part of his philosophy that he would translate to me when I was studying with him uh, you know, he, he didn't really care from a taste perspective what kind of music he wanted to make or uh, what the end sound was going to be, but as long as you did what you wanted to do and do what you needed to do with rigor and really worked at it and analyzed all of the different elements of the sound of uh, you know, the music that you wanted to make, as long as you dealt with all of those different uh, parameters and dealt with them responsibly, then he was happy and that was really the goal, was to just work through your own methodology and question the different uh, aspects of the music you were making and really work at it. Yeah, it's like the, self, the self-taught teacher is ultimately the best teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in this case, for sure. Also, one thing that was so amazing to me, especially evident at the concert, 
It was the amount of tension in the music and how that kept things really interesting and moving forward. Right. I've heard a lot of it solo improvised concerts and I've played plenty where I'm the person who's unfocused and it feels like totally directionless and it feels like you're just, as an audience member, you're like, well, this is fine, but man, this has been going on a long time. With Joe, it was like the time sped up. Like, not his time, but like the time in the room for me, I felt yeah. the 40 minutes he was playing went by very quickly. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that has to do with the focused energy in his playing. It was how, really... how would you define that um, focused energy? In, I mean, he's playing extremely fast lines. Is but there... not, nothing to do necessarily with the content, it's just with his... Um, I don't know another way to really to really state it. It's I mean it could have been a, it can be anyone on any solo instrument, but it's just it's this stream of ideas and they never really repeats and it never gets boring. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he's so incredibly focused when he's performing and he creates this tension. It's a lot like, in my opinion, listening to Morton Feldman. I know it's stylistically a lot different, but a lot of people say, yeah, his music is, Morton Feldman's music is very slow and it takes a long time and it's very quiet. I'm like, yeah, but it's also extremely um, focused and intense. And I think there's a similar focus intensity in Joe's improvising that keeps the music very interesting as a listener to me, for sure. Derek Bailey, to put it into a guitar context, is somebody who would also, in my opinion, have that kind of intensity and focus, even if he's playing something very sparse or if he's playing something incredibly busy. It just keeps you super interesting. Or, or if you look at a Barnett Newman painting and you see the color field and he's got the zip going through the middle of it, that's what I think holds the tension in the painting, because that's not perfect, it's vibrating somehow. It's this intensity and it can be in painting and music and whatever, um, it's really, I think, a key to keeping the music interesting, and for me, at least, as a listener. There's a lot of urgency. He sort of, like, jumps into the stream mm-hmm. of ideas at the beginning of the set, and he doesn't jump out until yeah. the set's over. Yeah. He's yeah. in it the whole time. Right. Well, it's nice to hear Jeb. Jeb will always be a Chicago musician in my in my, yeah. in my ears. Do you mean that stylistically as well, or just um, maybe just because I know him so well, I've worked with him so much when he was here that it's always hard for me to realize he doesn't live here. Yeah. And when he plays, I think of, oh yeah, empty bottle. Yeah. Like I moved to Chicago, I used to hear the Vandermark Five. I hear Jeb, and then we started working together. And yeah. Yeah. This is kind of embedded in my. DNA that he's a Chicago person. Is there anything um, stylistically, anything to the content that he's playing that feels particularly Chicago to you? Mm. Or to any of you? Yeah, I don't know what, what constitutes the idea of a Chicago approach. Right. Yeah. You know, or, or a New York approach, or a quote-unquote European approach. I mean, we use these terms to try to find a way to talk about music, which we have to, you know, if we want to talk about it, you have to have a starting point, you know. But I mean, when you think about, to keep it to Chicago, when you think about the legacy here, which goes back to early 20th century, but certainly, I would say, in the late 20th century, the connection is with the AACM. When you look at that body of work and that organization, I mean, the only thing I can think of is variety. 
Yeah. You know, there isn't a way the AACM sounded. I mean, right. you can even talk about the art ensemble. You talk about the players within the art ensemble. I mean, Lester Bowie, Jarman, Roscoe Mitchell, Malachi Fares, and Moye. I mean, their approaches individually to music are so vastly different, and they found a common way to work together, which is part of why that group is so extraordinary. Yeah. Um, so I just, I just find it interesting because a lot of times you'll hear this thing about, okay, the Chicago approach and like, well, what does that what mean? That? Because yeah. does that mean that it's diverse? <laughs> you know, I mean, okay, you know, I, I buy that, but, yeah. but I don't feel like there's like a way of doing things, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it was interesting when Nate Woolley was on the series, we had a conversation about some things and there was a statement made by uh, a guy who runs a label in Europe, and he was talking about, for him, the Chicago musicians have a more direct line connection to jazz history, quote-unquote, mm -hmm. the idea of jazz as an aesthetic style, compared to New York. And Nate had a lot of contrary statements to that fact. <laughs> you know, he, he was like, no. And he made a long list of why that didn't make sense to him. So even in a thing like that where someone might have a sense of like okay, this is what this is about then I think it leads to a misunderstanding about the contrary in the case of New York Absolutely. being like not connected sure. and um, so these generalizations are a bit tricky um, you know I, I mean I think that one nice thing about Chicago is that because it's kind of located in the middle of a cornfield it, it has a bit of freedom about what people try seems to be a little bit less pressure on you know following certain trends you know or certain kinds of things that are successful and that I think goes back for me really directly to the ACM I still can't figure out why why and how the ACM developed all these radical approaches to music I mean almost every single person I can think of in that initial pool had their own compositional style their own improvisational style and none of it had to do with the paradigm that was developed of the free jazz quote unquote coming out of New York City by the late 1960s it's completely different and I think that the set of pressures on making it New York and what constituted being a great player uh, that was very different here and also in St. Louis with the Black Artist Group I mean that the music's coming out of the Midwest were completely different and in that case, maybe there is something to be said for like a difference between what happens in New York even now and what happens in Chicago even now. But I don't think it's like a simple, uh, simple aesthetic difference. It's it's a, it's a maybe a freedom in what to try. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interested in drawing it back to these guys playing, and it, I was interested in yeah, the other sort of Chicago sound as being one of hybrid um, ideas because actually on a biographical level the first time I ever heard Chet Bishop was I was a senior in high school and I bought a tortoise CD, a TNT, which was the new one at the time. I'd never, I'd like read about tortoise, you know, this is before you could stream stuff on the internet. Um, and, uh, and and Jeff plays trombone and a few tracks on that. So that was my first association oh, okay. was, was like through, which is something that I came to essentially through listening to like indie rock and stuff, not through jazz in any capacity. So then a few years later learning that, you know, he was prim primarily, I, I guess, somebody who played with people um, like Josh Abrams and Hummy Drake uh, and a jazz player was sort of interesting and now seems almost 
you know, common sense that of course he's playing, he's, he's a Chicago guy, he plays in all these different worlds and it's no big deal. But that seemed somewhat radical to me at the time in uh, the late 90s. Well, I think that kind of cross-pollination was happening a lot at that time yeah. through like different quote-unquote genres of music. Um, Jeff Parker played solo on the series uh, about a month or so ago. I mean, I asked him about that because, you know, we were, were more or less the same age and we were here at the same time in that period and I wanted to see what he thought about why that occurred. And, you know, there's a lot of, there isn't one answer for it. There were so many things happening at the same time and variables that no one had control over. But definitely, I think there were a lot of people who were asking questions about what it meant to be, in Jeff's case, a jazz musician. And in the case of the folks that ended up creating Tortoise, like what it meant to be a rock musician. And the paradigms that existed for that, like there were a bunch of like, signing interest groups at that time after Nirvana broke and they you know to simplify they didn't want, in the underground they didn't want to be part of that they wanted to be opposite of that and the same thing I think with jazz like if this is the standard maybe I want to try something different or ask questions about what that means mm -hmm. which led a lot of people to work together because they were asking similar questions even though they had different backgrounds yeah. and that commonality of, of like why do it this way? Why not try something else? Led to people working together a lot, which is really fantastic, you know? And it makes a lot of sense, and I think that that's more natural, actually, than holding fast to a certain kind of tradition and, and not being willing to experiment, you know? Yeah. And I'm always happier in those situations, definitely, to have people working from different backgrounds, yeah. you know, playing together, because then you're going to find some different set of ideas, you're going to have to communicate things differently, the resources are different, and uh, that definitely is, is something that's been part of the history here, even more recently, and the more that happens, the better. Definitely, totally agree. And I feel like maybe because all three of them have such a varied uh, history in different types of music, uh, that they're able to come together and play and not bring the stylistic baggage of whatever music they play in different contexts. They're able to come together and listen to each other and create music that happened at that moment that was uniquely to, you know, unique to that moment when they were playing together. Right, okay, so like Josh yeah. Abrams doesn't have to be like, well, I'm a player who does, you know, XYZ, so, you know, here I am doing my thing. He's like, I'm a player who does whatever. Because they're so skilled in going from one zone to another and playing in different contexts, I think that allows them to to show up to a gig together and not have any, you know, pre-developed uh, stylistic things that they're going to start with at the very beginning, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah. This is Nate Woolley playing a trumpet through an amplifier, and Nate is clearly virtuosic at making his trumpet and amp rig sound like nothing else sound synthetic sound like distortion I mean it is using distortion um, at times it sounds like he's like a percussion um, I wonder if you guys um, again sorry this isn't really directed at any one of you but I wonder if you guys could reflect on the sort of responsibility or burden or opportunity of 
it could be positive or negative of sounding an instrument sounding like itself in some sense, like in the traditional sense, versus trying to denaturalize the sound of an instrument on any of your instruments or how he's doing it on his instrument. It, it doesn't sound anything like a trumpet played with traditional technique, obviously. But a lot of these sounds are only sounds that he could get blowing air through a horn that's shaped like a trumpet into a microphone into an amplifier. Right. So in a certain way, it is very trumpet-like, just mm -hmm. not the trumpet that we're all used to hearing. Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, I mean, he's taking the sounds that the instrument can make, and he's, he's really using the amplifier to bring those to the forefront, you know. And so he's exploring all this stuff that normally isn't audible, um, and he's creating a whole landscape out of that material instead of it being in the background. And uh, that's part of what makes Nate so extraordinary. You know, in the set that we're listening to, um, the first part was uh, all acoustic, and, then, and a lot of what he did in that half of the concert dealt with sounds like this, but let's say in an inversion of what was at the forefront, because to get some of these sounds, you have to really push the instrument. So the dynamic level is different. The, the nature of the tone is different. Um, and, and part of what I really admire about Nate is the rigor and the discipline of approaching the concept. Like A lot of people use electronics. A lot of people amplify what they do or use um, acoustic players, you know, altering their instrument with electronics and whatnot. And a lot of them do a really terrible job at it because if someone really works with electronics, it's just another tool, it's another instrument, and it needs as much rigor and discipline as playing a cello, you know, or a trumpet. And Nate's whole approach to using the amplifier in this part of his concert, it, he has complete control over what he's doing. I mean, when we've toured with him and stuff, and he played solo on one of the Made to Break trips, I don't know, about four or five nights on the tour, every night he had, did something different as a solo performer, which is really, really hard to do. And it was, yeah, I mean, I have nothing but respect for what he does because he, the way he approaches using the amplifier, it's not a gimmick. You know, he's, he's, really figured, he's really figured out what it can do, why he wants to use it in the first place. He's not driven to, it's just like, oh, you know, that's what's in now, I, I should do this. It's like he's really, he's put the thing in the sequence of the idea about the idea and then developing the idea, presenting the idea after he's actually developed it. You know, he's not, he's not interested whatsoever in the fact that like, okay, I've got an amplifier, I'm gonna make loud trumpet sounds. Like right now, it's extremely quiet, you know. So he's he's playing with all these things at a very 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 high level, and uh, that's unique. Unfortunately, that's unique. It should be it should be commonplace if you're gonna if you're gonna approach things this way. Otherwise, don't bring him to the table. And he seems very very aware of all that. It's interesting. You said he has complete control uh, because you praised Paul Litton earlier for creating situations that he couldn't fully control? Maybe well, I, I, maybe I, just sorry to interrupt you, but no, I, should, no. I should qualify that because I think Paul has complete control too. And by complete control, I mean, uh, how would I put it correctly? Paul knows what he's doing, let me put it that way. He has, 
and so by creating situations he can't control, he, he has complete control. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like he's creating a situation. He's, he's pushing himself out of his comfort zone, and that's a decision, a controlling decision, even though the end result is a lack of control. It's a paradox, but sure. to me that makes complete sense, especially as an improviser, and completely it makes sense as a solo improviser because you have to create situations that you don't know what's going to happen, otherwise you're not really improvising. And Nate also is doing stuff that's pushing himself and he's discovering things and by complete control I align them in a way because Paul has an incredible set of technique an incredible set of vocabulary Nate as well they develop those things they can control those elements but then they put them into a game they put them into play and they don't know what the end result's going to be. So like I've heard Nate work with the amplifier many, many, many times now, and every single time he does something different. It's not a program. It's not like it's dark, quiet, at the end, it's a loud scream. It's a million different things, and he discovers in territory one day or one evening that is really fruitful and gives him a lot of information to work with. And I don't think it, based on my experience hearing him, it's not planned. It's, it's so... Like Paul, it's a set of controls that are, are unleashed, in a sense, into a situation that isn't controlled. So that's what I mean by complete control. It's a complete non-control control. Sure, sure. Oh, that's good. Like, if I just heard this out of nowhere, I would think, oh, this is some kind of noise musician who probably came out of, like, an extreme end of rock music, not somebody who came out of playing bebop lines. Um, do you think that what he's doing here is coming out of, is it just a completely sui generis thing, or is it coming out of his jazz experience in any way? Even if he, he came to more radical music, outside of straight ahead jazz later yeah. in life I wouldn't say that that means that he's coming out of jazz when he's doing you know like sure, sh sure that busting open of the boundaries of what one listens to can happen at any point in one's life and maybe that's where certain things come from as an artist uh you know, no matter when that moment happens, but when you start sort of discovering a lot of diverse, different things to draw from, uh, well, a lot of times if the if those boundaries are held tight for a long period of time, and then when they finally do open up, then it is more radical than it could have possibly been. You know, what happened earlier in time. Uh, don't know what I'm getting at. Well, there's a technique he had to develop on his instrument, and his yeah. first style of music that he developed it on was, for lack of a better word, jazz, let's call it. Right. He wouldn't have gotten to this point without developing through some type of disciplined study of his instrument. Um, and I think as he was getting older, he got more and more interested in various styles of music, and this is one particular area that he's interested in investigating right now, and I think he would never reach this point had he not gone through the development of all the other things that he's learned. And for him, it happened to be jazz, you know, but I play with plenty of musicians who never played jazz music and came out of a rock thing or metal thing, and they're doing something also yeah. really quite interesting, and I think it's about having the right attitude towards sound and just being open to different things, really. Yeah, um, and whatever style of music that you 
sort of develop a methodology for it. You have to sort of de develop a methodology for a methodology to learn how to uh, identify and evaluate different aspects of whatever style of music or art that you're creating. And just learning how to do that can allow you to do any different type of stylistic thing that you want to do as long as you are paying attention to all the specifics. And I also think that in a way what we're listening to now can be seen as having a relationship to the way the English school of improvisers developed their stuff in the mid to late 60s and 70s that all of them were jazz musicians. I mean all of them, Derek Bailey was a jazz musician and a working musician did a ton of other kind of music as well. And all of them, in a sense, quote unquote, turned their back on it. So they came out of that background like Nate came out of the background he's got. And the difference with Nate is that he also keeps working in, quote unquote, that field, the jazz field, right. whereas the English left it for good, basically. Although Derek Bailey did do that jazz album at the end of his life. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that, that there, for me, there's a lot to be said for this dialectic of pushing against your history. The English wouldn't have arrived at what they arrived at if they didn't have the jazz background and say, hey, we can't be American jazz musicians for a variety of reasons. So what are we gonna do? You know, and I think, not to speak for Nate, but like coming out of a background like that and then discovering all this other stuff and his incredible curiosity, it's like, well, it's something to push against. So if the nature of the trumpet is X, Y, and Z, out of the jazz tradition, what do I do to find another thing? And you eliminate those things. And he talks about, you know, parsing out very specific elements of the instrument. He talks about uh, dealing with like jazz history, and like I, I, you know, when we talked after his gig in the in the discussion part of the program that night, I asked him about how he prepared for a solo thing. Like, does he just walk up and play like a Paul Rutherford? And he says, No, I have a I have an idea in a sense that there's not a specific program, but he, he wanted to paraphrase, to paraphrase, he wanted it to be musically successful. Hmm. In a sense, having a goal, which is a bit different than Rutherford's attitude. You know, it's like finding something and maybe I find it, maybe I don't. Nate's trying to arrive at something and get something across. And I would say that that is a different attitude about improvising that comes out of a jazz background, is the narrative approach to improvising, you know. Um, and that's something that also comes from, even if it doesn't sound the same as a jazz set of aesthetics, it does come from a basis in that. <laughs> So we clearly could be listening to nothing other, no one other than Terry X and... Uh, I was going to say Stolker. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Andy, Andy, uh, Andy, Andy Moore yeah, and the Ex-Guitars. Yeah, Ex-Guitars. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, we talked about the, the difference between playing, like, playing an electric guitar and playing an acoustic guitar earlier and the, the range of inflection that you can have on an acoustic guitar and here they are on electric guitars getting every bit of that inflection that you could possibly get on an electric guitar. Yeah. Oh, they're wonderful. But it's clearly a very different set of inflections. Completely different set of inflections. So, Andrew, as the guitar player, can you sure. comment on what sort of, uh, what are there, some of the unique sort of 
uh, gestures and sonic moves. Uh, well, they're, they're allowing those instruments to be played not at you know, not as a guitar where you put your left hand on the fretboard and you pluck strings with your right hand. Although they are doing some of that as well, they're really looking at the guitar and getting every possible sound that you could get out of it and cutting in between all those different things that you can explore with the instrument. Uh, you know, they're looking at it as a slab of wood that has some metal strings on it and a pickup that you can make sounds with yeah. really loudly. Again, we talked about control earlier. Yeah. And they are setting some conditions for a lot of chaos to occur. But they know what they're doing. But they know what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. Um, I know Terry's playing more than Andy's. And I want to know more about Andy's because I just haven't had a chance to check sure. his music out as much yet. Um, but I've heard Terry in context with the X. I've heard him in a context with Palmos and Love and Ken Vandermark. I got to play with him a couple times. Um, I heard him do a duo with Wilbur de Yuda, this great Dutch bass player. And every time I hear him, I get a sense of immediacy from his playing, like a very direct approach. And his sound is always, it's always Terry. So to agree with Andrew, in whatever context I hear him, I don't think of that's Terry not, not being in the X. I think of that's just Terry. That's how he sounds. And it's immediately recognizable. Just like Jeb Bishop's trombone sound to me, I know that's Jeb, I know this is Terry. You know, whether he's playing with Ab Bars, whether he's playing with Ken, whether he's playing with Paul, Nelson Love, it's it's his sound and it's his aesthetic and it's very, very um, strong and it's very direct. Would you, um, how would you define some of the features of that voice, of that direct sound? Um, I mean, I don't, you don't have to be overly technical. But yeah, I don't like to get overly technical because it just works for me. It's, I mean, sometimes it's very angular. Sometimes it's um, very polyrhythmic. Other times it's extremely textural. But all of the, my, my favorite improvisers have yeah. a multiplicity um, of different ideas and approaches to how they're going. But he, what's so beautiful about him is he has a multiplicity of interests and ideas and tools but it brings it together and it sounds, it sounds like Terry. Also an amazing sense of humor in his music, like in, in the best way possible. Like, I think yeah. it's wonderful. Um, if you ever seen him live, I think you've told me it's fun to watch him while he's improvising. Yeah. And it's not, it's yeah. the same thing with Han Bennett, the great drummer. Uh, when I first saw him, I'm like, oh, it's this guy throwing drums around and like making a big, all these theatrics. But man, there's a reason he's doing that. And I don't maybe, and Ken might know more than me because he's played with them a lot more. I don't think Terry's theatrics maybe are as extreme as Han Bennett's, um, but certainly his body movement is part of his language and it reinforces it. And I think it's there for a specific reason. He's not jumping around because he's trying to look cool, although he does look cool. <laughs> he in looks place. really cool. Also but <laughs> it's, it's, it's an integral part of his, of his whole aesthetic, I think. There's a visual performative aspect of it that we're not getting right now because we're listening to yeah, the recording totally. that was there in the performance yeah. of, uh, you know, that visual aspect complementing what's happening. Sure. Sonically. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, when I saw him with Wilbert de Yuda, it was at this place called Zal 100 in Amsterdam. He was running up and down and he had a drumstick and so he's playing guitar and he was running up and down the room and he'd hit the table with the drumstick. And then move back, and then run up the room, you know. 
and it made perfect musical sense to me. It's like it really, it was like it wasn't this thing that he wanted to add to what he was doing with guitar. It was all fully integrated into his whole approach. The movement, the yeah. sound, it just it made sense. It really made sense. The first time I ever saw him play was I saw the X open up for Fugazi when I think I was I was 18 or something, and it was as you can imagine, totally mind-blowing. And I remember them, the two of them, and I guess the bass player, I'm not sure who it was, um, somebody X, you know, um, uh, doing a sort of jumping thing, and they were kind of like bounding back and forth on the stage, and it felt like I was watching the band vibrate. Like, it was like the whole song was like, you know, with, I mean, which was being obviously reinforced by the sound. Um, So Ken, you've played with these guys a ton in Lean Left. Um, so I wonder, uh, when you listen to something like this, how are you hearing what the way they're structuring the piece or the way they're kind of relating to each other differently than when you, they're playing with you and Paul or in other larger band settings? Well, to deflect the question a little bit, I think <laughs> that this is a great example of, of what we were talking about earlier with Nate coming out of a jazz background sure. and where he arrives. I mean, Terry and Andy are really coming out of an indie rock background, particularly the, the whole uh, uh, post-punk movement coming out of England primarily, but also in the Netherlands. And um, there are elements of the music going by in back of us as we're talking, like this right here, for example, that could be Nate playing through the amplifier. <laughs> right. And how they get to that place which on the surface has aesthetic, like let's say, commonality. They're getting at it from we're underground rock musicians who are curious and, and curious about improvising and dealing with sounds in different ways and getting more invested in improvisation. And let's say Nate's coming out of a jazz background, playing big band music with his father and starting there and going, and then also becoming curious about sound and open improvisation. And then those things from totally different places in the world and different backgrounds have an aesthetic overlap because pushing to someplace new, sometimes you arrive from different directions, you know. I mean, when I started playing with Lean Left and even now when I play with them, I mean, the tools that I have coming out of, let's say, more of a jazz background than they have for sure, but uh, none of it worked, none of it. I mean, rhythmically it didn't work, sonically it didn't work. The volume was very <laughs> difficult, but there was something there, you know, um, and and it really motivated me to try to find new things to do, new ways to play, and I think you know Andy and Terry are really great examples of that. I mean, even when they're playing duo, they're not necessarily, in a conventional sense, communicating in an obvious way, which is partly why it's so great because the obvious communication is the most boring communication right you know it's like this thing where someone plays a phrase and then the person echoes it yeah you know it's, it's like you know it's like yeah I get that you're listening to me but please don't repeat you know like <laughs> yeah, having a yeah, conversation yeah, yeah. and the person yeah, repeats yeah. everything yeah. I mean so okay if that's a sign of communication that's the most rudimentary sign and so they're catching things on the fly and they'll pick up on them but they're they're providing material all the time and um playing with Lean Left, it really taught me whatever concept behind that that I was aware of. It taught me the validity of it because if you held on, you would catch things on the fly that you could utilize and then you either just wouldn't play or you'd bring something in. 
but as long as the stuff was content-based and contributed something to the elements that were happening, it would find a form that was not based on anything that I was familiar with. It wasn't, it wasn't like, I mean, I was familiar with listening and working with Brotsman, for example, and certainly his work with Hein Bennick and Fred Van Hove and that trio, like that was like the case, the ultimate, you know, exhibit A of that kind of playing. But that stuff I could, I could deal with because the language types were things I was familiar with. Mm. With Terry and Andy, I was like, you know, yeah. these are two incredibly loud guitars with different <laughs> rhythm sensibilities, different sonic sensibilities. Structural sensibility is completely different. I can't like try to be like quote unquote a broadsman on top of this. Yeah. It just sounds like crap. Yeah. You know? So it really made me reassess how to play, which you can't ask for more than that. Yeah. That's true. It's great true. That's true. That's true. That's great. That's true. That's great. That's true. That's great. That's true. Next. Next. And perhaps maybe one of you guys want to say who we're listening to. I mean, I could say it too. Uh, I believe the group was Ben Goldberg with Michael Coleman and Hamir Atwal. Yeah, the trio was Invisible Guy. Invisible yeah. Guy. I really loved how they had really uh, sculpted the sound of the group and how. Michael's Wurlitzer sound would interact with Ben's clarinet and the, the matching of those two sounds acoustically were really mm. unbelievable to yeah, me. And Amir was phenomenally sensitive with the very, uh, you know, uh, not to say light as in, well, uh, from a volume perspective, they weren't the loudest group that's ever played the series, but they were so in tune with how, uh, uh, just the dynamics of how they were operating, I guess. Yeah. yeah, they were really a band. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of people get together to play, and that can be really excellent, but there's something special about a band that has yeah. its own language, its own quality, and this was a band, and that was really, really fantastic to hear. And I was knocked out by Michael's uh, use of harmony. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a, usually directed towards that aspect of the music as much, but his harmonic uh, structures were so melodic. They weren't just a bunch of changes to play over. They really had a quality and a character that was essential to the pieces, uh, which was fantastic. And he was really, I mean, I knew Ben's music much more than his. And he was really a beautiful surprise, like what he brought to the group yeah. as a composer and as a player. And this, his use of harmony on, on a number of the pieces was really like, wow, okay, if I was working that way, this is a way to do it. And yeah. it really had meaning. I love when people in really, truly engage with the acoustic properties of the clarinet. Mm. It's something that doesn't happen often enough, mm. I feel like. Because mm -hmm. the clarinet has such an interesting tone character as an instrument uh, yeah. and pairing it with a Wurlitzer is just oh yeah it's amazing <laughs> yeah. yeah here's a perfect example of that yep. <laughs> mm -hmm. and then yeah being able to play around with the intonation since the waveforms are so similar uh, it really has 
an unbelievable acoustic effect to hear the clarinet sort of moving around that one pitch in the Wurlitzer from an intonation perspective and hearing the beating between those pitches, mm. especially in that room at ESS, that's a very yeah, live, yeah. resonant room. Yeah. Being able to really feel mm-hmm. yeah. that effect was pretty, pretty amazing. We haven't otherwise been talking about the series as a series because we're talking about music primarily, but this is one of the really nice things about listening to a very intimate set in a recording studio. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds yeah, yeah, really good. Just the textures of that would be even, even in like at the Hungry Brain or something, which might be a completely dead, silent room because it's all listeners. You're not going to get quite the that, texture. That room at ESS is very special yeah. in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not dead like most recording studio rooms would be. It's a very live, resonant space, which is great. Yeah, yeah that environment, you know, it certainly wasn't planned. It was an option that was given to us, so to speak. <laughs> um, but. Uh, it's turned out to be so unique and like really powerful as a space because, you know, just these two last things we listened to, the, the set with Terry and Andy and now the thing with Invisible Guy, I mean, it's totally different music. And you're right on top of it in that space. Both things work in that space. Talking to people in that space, you feel like you're sitting in a living room. The musicians feel super comfortable to open up and discuss their ideas and what they work on, what they think about. And it's really, you know, you can't make that happen. It, it just has been happening since the start of the series. And um, the range of things that have occurred in there in the last, you know, year plus have been really extraordinary. And if you look at the list of just the things, you know, that we've been listening to with the other musicians, that have been on the series, both from Chicago and the States and Europe. It's it's crazy. It's really crazy and special, you know. Definitely. And that environment is a big part of it. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I've known Spencer many years. Um, he used to live in Cincinnati. Yeah. And I would go down there to play, and he would help out with concerts. And I knew him as a violin player. He was a quite good violin player, and, and I hadn't seen him in many, many years until recently. Uh, kind of put a project together with Made to Break, and added C. Spencer, Yay, and Nate Woolley to it. And actually, let me back up. Ken and I were in Vienna, and C. Spencer was giving a concert at a club there. That's right. That's where I, I heard him. I hadn't heard him in years, and he was doing this vocal manipulations and these and this sampling and it blew my mind. I had no idea what he was up to all those years. Because he had a, a thing called Burning Star Core, which he still might do. And I know he does still play violin. And it's quite good. Uh, but it blew my mind. It's just someone that I haven't heard of in a little while. And I see him completely develop this other thing. It was really, really inspiring, I gotta say. Yeah, I remember that gig in Vienna because I was super exhausted. We were on tour. Yeah. And. I heard a lot about Spencer and Nate Woolley had talked about him a lot and I thought, okay, he's doing a solo concert, I should go, but I'm fried. And in the end I decided to go and uh, I didn't know what he was going to do at all. I, I had no background knowledge of, of Spencer's work at all, which is my own ignorance. And then in general I'm not very interested in vocal music, which is again a, <laughs> a, 
a personality flaw. <laughs> and um, he started with, you know, using these vocal sounds, and I thought, oh boy. And then he started recording them, and I also really am not interested in the use of loops, the way they're generally used. Like, okay, you're building something, I get it. And now you're stacking it up, I get it. And the combination of the fact that I was exhausted, he was using vocals, and he was using what I assumed were looping devices, I was just like, oh man, why am I here? And then about two minutes into it, my mind was completely blown. Like he totally took things that I normally would not like at all and completely turned them on their head and I had no idea how he was doing what he was doing and it was completely mind blowing. And then, you know, uh, uh, Andrew was talking about trying to get him on the series before that and I was like, yeah, we're doing that for sure because this guy's incredible. And he came to play uh, this performance and he played in Milwaukee uh, the night before. And I was lucky enough to play with him and part of it, the reason I bring that up is not because it's about me, but I was curious in a way with his work, the way he was approaching the vocals and the recording, if he was flexible with it. Because it, it was amazing, but I didn't know if it was like he only did it one way or yeah. it was a set piece, so to speak. And he can take this material and he's completely flexible with it. He was incredible yeah. improvising yeah, with yeah, it, you know. Yeah. And the performance that he did in Chicago of this vocal music was also the material that he had done in Vienna, but it was a completely different way of dealing with it. You know, there were certain elements that were consistent with the sounds and whatnot. But to see someone develop something that's super unique, very, let's say, specific, but also incredibly flexible is very unusual. I mean, it's not like a one-trick thing. Yeah, it's like, yeah. this is a whole world yeah. that I can explore. And it's deep, you know? Yeah. And that was like, I mean, for me, speaking from that was inspiring. It's like, oh man, I got, I got some work to do. Yeah. This guy is, is rolling with this. Yeah, it's especially impressive while using samples or sampling himself or, mm -hmm. or anything that involves any kind of loop, even if it's a very long one, that sort of potentially locks you into a certain thing that makes you not able to react. Right, and, and lots of times people get bogged down in the technology. Right. You know, it's like you have someone doing something great and then they start pushing buttons and suddenly they're on their home computer, like, checking their email, basically. It's like... <laughs> You know, like, hello, we got a concert going here, you know, and they totally lose, like, the flow and the yeah, sense of things, totally. you know, whereas, like, you know, the people we're talking about, like Spencer and, and, and Nate, these are people using technology as a tool that's an effective tool that's integrated into what they're doing. They're not side, you know, tracked by it. Yeah. And that's the thing is, like, they really worked on it. They've really developed it. And that's what you should do. I mean, it's like it's playing an instrument. I mean, just because you have a saxophone doesn't mean you should play it. You know, that's I mean, true. And, yeah, <laughs> definitely. And so, you know, so so it's like you got to work at it. Totally. You know, and, and just because you plug it in doesn't mean you don't need to work at it. You know? Definitely. Oh, this is a this is a great part with this. Yeah. Yes. This, this was, sorry to interrupt, but this is what was great in Vienna because it was really loud. Yeah, yeah. it was a really and, tiny and this, club. And, this, and he, he did this part, it was super cranked in a PA. And this part that built, it was just like, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was fantastic. I yeah. was like super yeah. excited. Yeah. It's great. This reminds me, Tim, of the thing he said way back at the beginning with Lytton about it re resembling visual art or sculpture or sure. something. This kind of, especially you're describing, Ken, the very loud, um, the, the, properties of having like multiple layers of voice doing this kind of denaturalized vocal sound like blasted at you has a sort of um, 
sculptural quality to it. I think uh, I don't know so much about all of Spencer's influences outside of sound, but I have a feeling he's probably pretty interested in, I would say, the visual art world. I know he operates in that world a lot as far as performing in galleries and stuff like that in New York and abroad, so my feeling would be talking to him, he would probably have some insightful things to say about art, visual art, sculpture, probably many other things too. You should host a conversation with him. (laughs) so this is Chris Corsano playing solo this is Uh, Chris Corsano solo absolutely (laughs) that's right Tim and I are trying to figure out exactly what he was doing at this moment yeah he was blowing into a tube and he had it on some type of membrane it looked like a tambourine without jingles right and he had it on top of the drum that's how he was producing the the resonance um if you played this for it really close, yeah, so they had a close mic. Yeah. yeah, it was really, really cool. So this is right, running through the PA. Uh, he, I can't remember. Yeah, he had a yeah, he had a PA speaker. Okay. Yep, mm-hmm. that's what it he was. He did absolutely. Yep, he was running this through an app. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So yeah, doing something like this, he's really coming in a nice gray area between percussion and uh, a wind instrument. But incorporating that membrane, it still is very much a drum oriented thing you know that's the the heart of the instrument sort of Uh, so it is an interesting way to branch off from traditional percussion techniques and it's still tied to you know doing what he does it's not so unbelievably different than playing a drum but it certainly sounds that way yeah. This is obviously this is obviously this is obviously this is obviously a particularly stark example right at this moment what we're hearing. But in his playing in general, do you hear um, something different based on his punk background? That's a tough one because he. I feel like his um, language is is complex. He has a lot of different mm-hmm. influences. So I'm not I'm not hearing. Oh, he definitely used to play in a minor threat covered band. I don't hear that at all. I hear like a, a lot of energy to his playing, but you can get energy in any style of music. Sure. Um, there's a, a punk aesthetic to his whole approach to music, which comes from his background, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But his vocabulary, his content, I mean, he's interested in that, especially at this point, he's played with so many different people and he's played so many different styles that it's, yeah, I can't point to one. Mm-hmm. There was one thing, thing that I saw that I thought during the set. I was pretty sure I saw him drop a stick, um, and I, you know, I think this is no criticism of him. I think he's like one of my favorite drummers in the world. But I mean, I was like, I was like, yeah, that's right. He's going coming at this. I mean, we're ta- we've been talking about control, and there's a certain very literal sense of control there. But it, it seemed to me, and I might be interpreting it wrong, that he was going at what he was playing with a level of energy uh, that where. The energy takes precedence over executing everything exactly as intended. Yeah, totally. Well, it's definitely part of that aesthetic that you're talking about. Yeah. Coming out of punk and hardcore, of that energy definitely taking precedence over, uh, you know, performing, you know, correctly, however you would define that in front of an audience of people in a nice room, is, you know, that's not 
it, it has different goals than uh, yeah. other types of performance. He's not a classically uh, trained percussionist. He's not giving a recital. I mean, he comes yeah. out of playing punk music, got involved in free jazz, plays with lots of people, and he's presenting this concert. And he told me he felt this was a, he felt a little bit of anxiety when he performed. And I can relate. I've performed a lot, and I usually have some anxiety when I play. I get nervous if I don't have anxiety. Um, playing solo, you get I nervous have, if you don't have anxiety yes. because it means you're not. Maybe I'm not. Maybe on edge enough. I'm not thinking. Well, maybe I'm distracted or something. Okay. Um, okay. There has to be for me. There's always a little bit of performance anxiety. There used to be a lot, but this isn't about me. But um, he told me he felt a little bit of anxiety, and maybe that translated into some of the higher energy playing. Um, playing solo is extremely challenging, and. Um, Though this was something we got into in the discussion as a listener, I didn't feel that anxiety at all. I felt like a wonderful concert was performed that was very diverse and different. And he was like, well, thank you. I felt a little bit on edge. I'm like, well, that translated into what we're hearing, and I think that's great music, you know, so. Um. And there's an element, I think, also coming out of that punk and hardcore aesthetic of, as a performer, not putting yourself on any higher ground than the audience that's sitting in front of you. And I think part of that anxiety that he was talking about was that he was extremely present of the room and yeah. who was in the room, and that was driving part of his anxiety in the performance. And that, to me, totally speaks to that aesthetic of, you know, I'm sure I'm the build act who's performing this show tonight, but I'm no different than anyone who's sitting in the audience tonight. So, Which was contrib contributed point, so. to by the fact that there were like eight incredible drummers. <laughs> in the this is also true. This is also true. <laughs> Which I should say is a nice other thing. About Neil, the Pert was, Neil Pert was? Yeah, Neil Pert. Um, yeah, Neil yeah. All, everybody. Yeah, also something that speaks to his, uh, his excellence and his... Uh, you know, the, the fact that he played a set and the room was packed with some really Hits. incredible yeah. musicians also who really weren't going to miss that set, yeah. which is pretty amazing. Yeah, sounds amazing. Yeah. And he's also one hell of a nice guy, too, and that yeah. goes a long way. Yeah. Unbelievably sweet. Any, uh, any thoughts about the way that he structured his pieces? How he, I mean, it's come up a little bit how, how a solo performer can kind of make something that has a sort of full musical arc and becomes a composition, not just sort of yeah. a demonstration of things that they can do. Um, I talked to him about that specifically, and I, I can't remember exactly what he said, um, but my, what I'm remembering is this concert, the solo concerts, he doesn't go in with a predetermined idea structure, he just plays. Um, which would be more like a Paul Rutherford idea where you're playing. And in the middle of a solo concert, I'm sure there's decisions that you decide to make based on, I've been doing a dense thing for 10 minutes, maybe I need to switch, you know. And he did make the decision to blow into the tube to start that piece, but I think he makes this decision once he sits behind the drums and starts working. I don't think he comes in with any... Uh, at least he told me the solo. He doesn't come in with a predetermined uh, structure before he plays, which is amazing as a solo. That takes courage, I think, yeah. as, as a solo performer. And his decision making is razor sharp, and you can hear it in the recording. That when he decides to change to a different technique or add different things to the the pot of what he's working with, it's he he doesn't really make 
bad decisions. I love every decision that he makes as an improviser. Yeah, I wasn't there for that performance and just hearing it for the first time as we're talking, so I'm a bit distracted. But one thing that's really great about it and what is a flaw, not even in only solo music, but just improvised music in general, is the issue of uh, tempo. You know, people tend to gravitate to a tempo and then they stay at that tempo. And um, it's, it's really boring. <laughs> and like in, in, and tempo can be expressed in all kinds of ways. It's not just like with a, a meter, you know. And it can be expressed through dynamic use like this, you know. Totally. And uh, density and all these kinds of things. And in this piece that we've been listening to, you know, starting with stasis and then moving to density and changing dynamics and activity level, uh, momentum, all these kinds of things create a bunch of different sets of tension which is crucial if you're going to keep someone motivated to listen to you. And if he's uh, planning it or not planning it, uh, it's about results in a sense, you know, and the results are really captivating. And that, if you're doing that on your own, um, that's twice as or more so challenging than doing it with a group. And it's really great to hear someone be so aware of those things whether they're developing them on the spot or planning them out, so it's fantastic. One other thing I would say that I really like about him, about Chris, is I know a lot of musicians who play a lot of solo concerts. And Chris plays a lot of solo concerts, but when I hear Chris perform in a group, which I've only done a couple times, I've only heard him live a couple times, I don't feel like here's a solo artist working with other musicians. He can adapt to other groups really well. Sometimes if you hear someone who does a fair amount of solo playing at times, you can, it's a, it's a different way of performing, it really is. Um, and sometimes you hear someone who does a lot of solo go into a group context and it feels like here's someone who's playing solo in the context of other groups. And it's actually a different whole set of tools really when you're working with people versus playing solo and with Chris he adapt I think he adapts really well into various playing situations solo or duo trio whatever large group and he's never I never feel this hasn't felt to me like oh man he's just going through his solo vocabulary right. while there's other musicians right. around him also playing and never felt it never feels like that to me and I think the way that he he feels out a room and responds to what is going on in a room, even if it's just him playing by himself, translates to playing with the group. When there are other musicians on stage with him, he really applies the same thing and is really, in my opinion, one of the great listeners of you know improvised music as it is today. Uh, so I think that it's it all sort of comes out of that aspect of being in a room and and really answering to all of the conditions that are in that room and, and dealing with that. Well, good on you guys for creating the room. Where <laughs> you could do that. Well, the ESS created the room. We just put yeah. something in it. <laughs> <laughs>
they, ESS <laughs> created the room. We just put yeah. something in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I think I have a good idea for how to write it. You got this one. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs>